Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and as always, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story, and I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. So I bet you're asking yourself, JT, what's with all this fanfare? What's with the music? What's with this announcement? What the hell is going on in Tower Studios? Well, my friends... We made it to a huge milestone that I never would have thought was possible when I started The Paranormal Sun. The Paranormal Sun has now been listened to in over a hundred countries worldwide. And obviously, I couldn't have done this without you, the listeners, everywhere in the world. Honest to goodness, it means so much to me. You can't even imagine how proud I am that the program has made it to so many places around the globe. I mean, to me, that's insane. The I think there's around 220 countries in the world. And to know that my humble program has been heard in so many countries, it's just astounding. So you, the listener, make sure you give yourself a pat on the back. I really do appreciate it. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. To all the chapter presidents all over the world who have done such a great job at sending me stories and encouraging others to listen as well, thank you from the bottom of my heart, each and every one of you. It really means the world to me. And a special shout out to all of those who supported me financially when I didn't have two pennies to rub together. Now I've at least got a few quarters to rub together. I mean, believe it or not, folks, I know it's just some guy on the microphone. And unless you know me well, you don't necessarily know if it's true or not. But the the purpose of starting this program was never to become Joe Rogan or Art Bell or someone like that and be able to retire. Uh, trust me, it's never been that, and it probably never will be that, and I'm absolutely fine with that. But early on, when I didn't have the money for things like ink and paper and everything else, Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, Chris and his family in Illinois, and Adriana and Nico, as well as Scott in Missouri, who's now our newest Patreon of the Paranormal Sun, all of you helped me when I didn't have anyone else to turn to, and I didn't ask you all offered, and thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'll never forget what you've done for me. Yeah, I've talked a lot recently about our own mortality and stoicism and things like that, and like I say, a lot of the reason why I started this program was that I wanted to be able to leave something behind me when it's my turn to go. I wanted to leave some kind of positive impact in the world, and if there was one person out there, just one, that really enjoyed what I did and it resonated with them, that's what I was looking for. And there's been so many of you. And honestly, from the bottom of my heart, you can't know how proud I am to be the host of this program and to see it grow and to see your continuing support. So again, thank you so much. Now, when we get to the season finale, whenever that is, we shall cover each and every country that's listened. But as of today, we are up to 
102 countries, which is just astounding to me. Also want to do some special limited edition merchandise for the website. First, I need to get a logo in that design, but it's in the process. I want to release that first and foremost. We're going to have some here in the studio. So sorry, folks, but I get the exclusive uh, first first bite at it. And then after that, I'll be uploading those to the website store. So if you want to go and purchase a t-shirt or something to say that uh, you've been part of the Paranormal Sun World Tour, by all means, I would love that. Again, each and every one of you, everyone who's taken the time to encourage me, send me thank yous or tell me I'm doing a good job or rate and review the podcast, or like I say, just listening. Each and every one of you Thank you so much. I couldn't have done it without you. And it's been astounding that in under two years, the show has reached over 100 countries. It's just something else. And who knows, early on when I wasn't tracking this as closely, there could have been a few other countries I missed. Yeah, it's it's astounding. Everywhere from North America, South America, Africa, Europe, Asia, Australia, of course, here in New Zealand, the Pacific Islands. It's been crazy. It, it really has. Like I say... Couldn't have done it without you, my loyal listeners, so thank you so much. So on that point, on the last episode, which was the Betty and Barney Hill episode that I did, part three, I mentioned that there was another synchronicity that I was saving. Well, now's the time to share that. So Scott and the team over at the Old 77 were on show number 99, and they were heading towards, obviously, releasing show 100. In the meanwhile, we were on about 96 countries listened to. And all of a sudden, folks, I'm not even kidding you, they got to episode 99, we got to 99 countries. The same day the boys dropped episode 100, we crossed the 100 country barrier when someone in Cyprus listened to the program. The 100 was always going to happen for the, the old 77, meaning that that was something that you could see sequentially happening. But the fact that the country number crossed over 100 the same day that the boys released episode 100, recorded it and released it, it was just mind-blowing to me. Yet another one of those synchronicities that is just right on the dot. So yeah, there is the other synchronicity story, and obviously I was saving it for this episode. And since I spent that segment talking about the Old 77, why don't we check out what the Old 77's all about? Hey, this is Scott from the Old 77. Have you listened to our show? Check us out. We're the Hangout Podcast. You come hang out with a bunch of friends and just talk. And you talk about anything. I mean, like this. If Kanye dropped dead today, yeah. would you shed a tear? Deep down, would you be like, oh, Kanye. Yeah, if he dies, man. I'm <laughs> sad. I'm about to tear up right now. Oh, just dude, We've fine. even had weird stuff happen like this. Uh, there's been a lot of stabbings in that building. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure there has. Shootings. A couple of shootings. Wild Wild West. Mm-hmm. Poker games yeah, and poker shit. Games. Yeah, well, yeah. It, I mean, it was just And of course, game. who can forget guests like JT from the Paranormal Sun? In my life, like, you know, like the older generation talks about Kennedy getting shot. Real seminal moments to me that, like, I can come New to episodes out Tuesday on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Find us on social media and like and subscribe on YouTube. This is the one and only (laughs) Old 77. So, like I say, it's just, yeah, good things. Good things keep rolling on through Tower Studios. And we're just going to keep at it, folks. You've got mail. Did uh did you hear that folks or was that just me cuz uh yeah that doesn't happen around here I know what it sounded like You've got mail Okay well I guess we'd better check shouldn't we Well yeah we got a message here let's open it up and see what's in it 
Hey, it's Scott from the old 77. I wanted to step outside, take a moment from podcasting, take a break, set it down, and congratulate one of my absolute best friends. I've known JT since we were in in high school, man. I I go way back with the guy, back when he still spoke with an American accent. (laughs) Congratulations, brother. You're heard now in 100 countries. Here's, Here's to many, many more. I hope you're in Greece, because that's one of my favorite countries that we're currently in, and and color pops in Greece. I'm just saying, that's that's a little, little pro tip from your cousin Scott. Congratulations to the Paranormal Sun, now heard in over 100 countries. Keep it up, brother. You're doing amazing content. Favorite segment, the news of the damned. Shout out. Congrats, JT. Congrats to you and to Tower Studios, brother. Keep the good work going. Well, it's definitely a uh, a good thing we opened that up, folks. Hey, um, thank you, Scott. Really, man, you've been such a big help and a big supporter of the show. Really, I would have struggled with so much of this audio without your help and especially your reassurance. Because early on, honestly, I needed I needed those words to tell me I'm not terrible. So, hey, man, thank you so much. It, it really means a lot to me. And also, folks, we've also had a congratulations from David Flora at Blurry Photos, who I had on as a guest. And David just said, hey, congratulations. That's a real big milestone. And I thanked him for being a part of it. So, yeah, folks, uh, and I'm sure we'll get more as other chapter presidents and other guests hear about this awesome milestone we've reached together. Now, I want to give you a little bit of feedback as far as what's going to happen the rest of the season. We're up to episode 16 in what I call the mainline series, which is things that aren't bonus episodes. So we're probably going to have at least episode 17, 18, and maybe even episode 19 of this season, all being about Betty and Barney Hill. Then we will be basically left with one more episode, which is to wrap up the season. And that will be traditionally, it always has been, and I plan it to be this time. It won't be a UFO episode. It won't be a News of the Damned. It won't be an interview. It will be a episode about something else, some other type of mystery. Now, if you want input on that episode, head over to the Paranormal Sun official Facebook group and join. There's a poll up there right now, and I'm letting you, the listeners in that group, decide what is going to be that final episode. Now, I am going to close that poll in the next few days because obviously I'm going to need time to look into and prepare that episode. But you've got about five or six choices up there. I can't remember how many exactly, but it was basically the maximum choices I could have for the poll. The last time I checked, John D. was leading the list. So at this point, if we were going to say what's going to be the episode that ends the season, it would be about John D., who was Queen Elizabeth I's court magician and occultist. And yeah, one of the most fascinating individuals from back in that time, probably right up there with Francis Bacon and Sir Isaac Newton. Although D. obviously came a little bit before Newton. If you want some input into it, go over there and check it out. I've also been asked by a few listeners out there who've gotten in touch with me and said, I think that this guest or that guest would be great for you to have on the program. You should reach out to them. I'm not going to, and this is the reason why, right now anyway, I should say. I have got between six and eight more interviews to edit and release. And what's been happening, unfortunately, is many of these interviews are coming out like six months plus after they're recorded. And I don't want to do that going forward if I can at all help it. I really want to be getting these episodes out much closer to the recording date. But trying to alternate these with the other mainline topics, like UFOs and everything else, 
It can be a bit challenging to do so. I don't want this to just turn into an interview show. On the other hand, I do think there's a lot of value in some of these great guests that I've had. So as of right now, I'm really not recording any more shows with guests until I can clean the back vault. I mean, if I've got a couple in there, it's one thing. But like I say, again, if we've got stuff that's 10 and 12 months out, a lot of times it might be something pertinent. Like, for example, when I had Al on from Forum Borealis, we were talking about the beginnings of COVID and everything else. And then by the time it came out, it was several months later. So I want to move a little bit faster on things like that. Now, as I go back to work, yeah, obviously might be a bit more difficult, but still, we're going to try not to have a huge backload of shows that are sitting there waiting to be edited where I've had guests on. And some of these folks you will really enjoy, trust me. There's some excellent content coming up. So as we move into Season 5, which is a very special season, by the way, because once we get into Season 5 of The Paranormal Sun, we're going to be heading towards our 100th mainline episode, which is very exciting to me. Yeah, I don't know quite what we're going to do for that yet, for the 100th episode, but uh, yeah, we might run another poll over in the Facebook group if you want to be involved. So yeah, by all means, go and join the Facebook group. And if you don't know where to find these things, if you go in the links of any of the program show notes, there's a link there that says you can follow and support the show here. And if you go in there, there's a link to the Facebook group. I chose the Paranormal Sun official because something like the Paranormal Sun, I'm, uh, there aren't any others out there, but you never know. So if there's one that says the official, you'll know that you're in the right place. Mark from San Antonio, who is our Air Force chapter president, who represents Air Force veterans. Mark has joined the group and has been very active in there. And Mark, I thank you for that. Mark, folks, has been a very loyal listener, great at giving feedback, and does his absolute best to try and help me make the show better. So as far as this program, tonight's program, we've got a bumper crop of News of the Damned articles. Twelve, count them, twelve articles. So we've got two from our chapter president in Missouri, Dave. Dave, who is also one of the co-hosts of The Old 77. We've got three from Trey in Oregon, chapter president in Oregon. And we've got two more from Mark, our aforementioned chapter president that represents U.S. Air Force veterans. So thank you all for sending those through. And the truth is, folks, I've got many, many more in the queue. I just haven't gotten a chance to get out. But I also found some that I thought would really be interesting for you. And so I wanted to cover those over as well. So aside from that, what's happening here at Tower Studios, I've started going through my DVR or TiVo, whatever you want to call it, and checking out some episodes that I've had saved in there and cleaning them up, watching them basically. So I watched a couple episodes of the Alaskan Triangle last night. I've still got probably, oh, 15 to 20 more hours of paranormal, well, more than that actually, because I've probably got 30 or 40 episodes of paranormal caught on tape alone to watch. So I'm slowly watching those in my free time in between recording and doing other things in the studio. So yeah, that's what I've been doing in the background. I've been enjoying some baseball games and NBA games. And yeah, just trying to find a good healthy mix of everything. So this is going to be quite a long episode. So now it's time to get into it. For those of you who are long-term listeners of The Paranormal Sun, you'll know the story of Charles Fort. Now, Charles Fort was a gentleman in the early 1900s who was interested in the same kind of things we're interested in. Cryptids, missing people, ghost ships, lights in the sky, all of these sorts of mysteries. Well, Charles Fort gathered together 30, 40, 50, 60,000 index cards worth of notes from periodicals, newspapers, and magazines from all over the globe, 
and he set them down in a series of books. And Charles Fort referred to anything that is ignored or excluded by science as damn data. Therefore, every time we do a news segment on the paranormal sun, it's known as the news, the news of the, the damn. So the first article we've got here was sent to me from Dave, our chapter president in Missouri. So thank you very much, Dave, for sending this through. So this is from The Sun UK, and the story reads, Space Invaders, UFO encounters left witnesses with radiation burns, brain problems, and damaged nerves, claims Pentagon documents. And this was from the 5th of April. Now, I've seen this article floating around in a few different publications, but this is the one I've got from Dave, so that's the one we're going to cover. So it says UFO sightings can leave witnesses injured, suffering radiation burns, brain problems, and damaged nerves, according to newly released Pentagon files. And you know how we love to cover those Pentagon and CIA files here at the Paranormal Sun. It says the report obtained by the Sun from the Defense Intelligence Agency, or the DIA, as part of a huge Freedom of Information request, investigates the health impact on humans who have had paranormal experiences. And then they've got some some photos of these documents, and I'm just scrolling down. So it says, The report titled Anomalous Acute and Subacute Field Effects on Human and Biological Tissues investigates injuries to human observers by anomalous advanced aerospace systems. And the report prepared for the DIA warns that such objects may be a threat to the U.S. interests. Okay, I'll bite my tongue until the end of this article. Humans have been found to have been injured from exposures to anomalous vehicles, especially airborne, and when in close proximity, it reads. The report noted that often these injuries are related to electromagnetic radiation and links them to energy-related propulsion systems. It lists injuries such as heating and burn injuries from radiation, damage to brain, and the able to impact people's nerves. Sufficient incidents accidents have been accurately reported, and medical data acquired, as to support a hypothesis that some advanced systems are already deployed, and opaque to full U.S. understandings, the report reads. It goes on, the medical analysis, yeah, sorry, this is not written the best, while not require the in invention of an alternative biophysics do indicate to use of, to us, unconventional and advanced energy systems. Uh, I wonder who wrote that, because uh, it's all gibberish to me. The report said it had 42 cases from medical files and 300 similar unpublished cases where humans had been injured after anomalous encounters. The study argued it was possible to use this medical information to reverse engineer UFOs from unknown provenance that may be a threat to the United States' interest. The report also featured a useful database which listed the biological effects of UFO sightings on humans and their frequency, compiled U.S.-based Civilian Research Agency MUFON, compiled by... I don't know who's writing these articles, but man, sometimes I get one of these and it's just like, I think a, uh, I think one of my five-year-old listeners could do a better job. It even included bizarre occurrences such as apparent abduction, unaccounted for pregnancy, sexual encounters experience of te uh, telepathy and perceived teleportation. 
Another fascinating document included in the files sets out how to categorize anomalous behavior with encounters with ghosts, yetis, spirits, elves, and other mythical legendary entities classed as AN3 and witness interaction with AN3 entities such as near-death experiences and religious miracles classed as AN4. There are also ratings for UFO sightings, flyby ratings, and close encounter ratings, including CE4 in which an encounter with an alien results in permanent psychological injuries or death, poltergeists, crop circles, spontaneous human combustion, alien abductions, and other paranormal events are also categorized. And in a statement bound to excite UFO hunters around the world, the report says, Classified information exists that is highly pertinent to the subject of this study, and only a small part of the classified literature has been released. I have no doubts. The report was part of over 1,500 pages of DIA documents related to the Pentagon's secretive UFO program, the Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program, or the infamous ATIP, that was obtained by The Sun. The Sun first requested a copy of the video files relating to ATIP on December 18, 2017, under the Freedom of Information Act, just days after the existence of the program had been made public. Finally, after more than four years, the DIA handed over 1,500 documents, including government-commissioned scientific reports and letters to Pentagon regarding the program. The DIA, the Department of Defense Spy Arm, said some portions of the documents must be withheld in part due to privacy, but that the DIA has not withheld any reasonably segregable, <laughs> non-exempt portions of the records. Okay, so just scrolling down again, they just got a few photos of some of these documents they're talking about. ATIP was a secretive Pentagon program that ran between 2007 and 2012 to study UFOs. Well, that's what they say. It was outed by former intelligence official turned whistleblower Luis Elizondo, who headed up the program back in 2017. Bombshell videos of unexplained UFO sightings by U.S. military personnel investigated by ATIP were also first published at the time. The revelations on the program marked a step change in the way the U.S. talks about UFOs, now more commonly known as unidentified aerial phenomena, because they stigmatized the term UFO, the CIA, the FBI, and all the other agencies and groups that were slandering everyone who saw things in the sky and called them idiots, uh, hillbillies, drunks, everything else. So, yeah, well, since we slandered that, we got to change it to UAPs. Mr. Elizondo also previously hinted about potential health impacts of UFO encounters, as seen in, his new, in this newly released report by the DIA. In an interview with GQ magazine, Elizondo was asked what kind of health effects and other phenomenon pilots may suffer. I've got to be careful. I can't speak too specifically, but one might imagine that you get a report from a pilot who says, Lou, it's really weird. I was flying and I got close to this thing, and I came back home and it was like I got a sunburn. I was red for days, he said. I was red for four days, he said. Man, again, this is just written like a child would write it. Well, that's a sign of radiation. That's not a sunburn. It's a radiation burn. Then a pilot might say, if they had got a little closer, Lou... I'm at the hospital. I've got symptoms that are indicative of microwave damage, meaning internal injuries, and even in my brain, there's some morphology there. He continued, and then you might get somebody who gets really close and says, You know, Lou, it's really bizarre. It felt like I was there for only five minutes. But when I looked at my watch, 30 minutes went by. But I only used five minutes worth of fuel. How is that possible? 
Well, there's a reason for that, we believe, and it probably has to do with warping of space-time. Yep. And the phenomenon has stepped from the fringe into a serious national security concern discussed by lawmakers, defense officials, and even former presidents Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. Yeah, publicly, trust me, they've taken this seriously since the beginning. The slew of newly released documents contains letters from Senator Harry Reid, who asked for the project to be classed as top secret, so it would be classified, not classed, and documents about contractors. It shows how a contract was awarded to Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies for $12 million, notably the only contractor to bid for the work, to study advanced aerospace weapon threats from the present out to 40 years in the future. In one 2009 letter, Senator Reid describes how the program has already identified several highly sensitive unconventional aerospace technologies, which required extraordinary protection. His request for restricted special access program for the BLAST work, so that's the Bigelow Aerospace work, was rejected by DIA officials. Last year, the Pentagon released its long-awaited report into what it knows, well, what they will tell you that they know about a series of mysterious flying objects that have been observed in military airspaces over the last two decades. The report released on the website of the Office of the Director for National Intelligence examined 144 reports of encounters with what the government deemed unidentified aerial phenomena. It comes as the Pentagon is opening a new office to investigate UFOs, their origins and attempt to capture or exploit one of the mysterious craft after an amendment to a defense bill tabled in the U.S. Senate. Okay, so a lot to unpack there. Number one, first and foremost, may be a threat to U.S. security, may be a threat. Hmm. Again, the same old, hey, at least they move from it's not a threat to maybe it's a threat. You've got objects that can, in layman's terms, teleport, disappear at will, travel at speeds that no human manned object can, can turn 90 degree turns going 3, 4, 5, 10,000 miles an hour, can disappear from radar and still be visibly there, don't give off a heat signature, on and on and on, and you're saying that these may be a threat to U.S. national security. Yeah, I got news for you, sunshine. It's a threat to every country's national security. Now again, there are people out there, in fact, some of you listening right now are probably going, well, what if it's all BS, JT, and what if this is all meteors and satellites and people's imaginations? Well, yeah, that's true, but again, I think that you're seeing more and more and more that all of these people can't be nuts or on LSD or imagining things or seeing sun dogs or the planet Venus or swamp gas or whatever other BS excuse they want to make. Look, I'll reiterate it here again because I've said it time and time again on the program. I personally believe from people who are a lot brighter than me, people like J. Allen Hynek and many other experts in this field, Jacques Vallée and on and on and on, that 97 to 99% of all unidentified flying objects have a rational explanation, i.e. it is a meteor, i.e. it's something like a rocket or a missile being tested, or a plane, etc. But that doesn't matter at the end of the day. As I say, in a quote that I've lifted off of Richard Hoagland, it only takes one white crow to prove that all crows are not black. And I really don't give a damn if 
it's a thousand legitimate UFOs that are something other, or it's a hundred, it's still more than one, and it's still more than zero at the end of the day. So yeah, I just to this day, it just makes me laugh that we continue to play this game of, oh, well, it may be a threat. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it may be a threat to national security. Mm -hmm. But I shouldn't be surprised. I mean, after the Washington overflight in 1952, where groups of these objects flew over Washington, D.C., and they said they didn't know what they were, and then very quickly changed the story to say, Oh, it was all radar inversions. It was all temperature inversions. But they were quick to say, oh, this this isn't a, a threat to national security. Now, again, why does that matter? Well, if I'm Joe Lunchpail or I'm Cindy Office Worker or anyone else and I'm paying my taxes, it's always been understood that one of the major things that your taxes go to is to defend the country. And for God's sakes, when you've got a country like the U.S. that's spending half of its GDP on the military, if you admit that you've got things like this, out there operating, wherever they're from, China, Russia, a uh, advanced civilization, a breakaway human civilization, an alien civilization, time travelers, whatever, you name it. If you got something that can do that and you admit that it's out there and that we can't do a damn thing about it, well, why should I pay my taxes? What are you doing with my money? You see what I'm saying? Uh, I just always have a chuckle when they say, oh, it may be a national security threat. Duh. I Really, do you think so? Come on. Oh, man. I just get so annoyed because in some ways we've come so far, and in some ways we're still stuck in 1952 with some of the stupid comments that I hear, and I just get tired of it because anyone who has looked through this kind of data, I mean, reams and reams of it. I'm not talking about somebody who watched a documentary on the autopsy, the alien autopsy footage or something like that and said, oh, well, everything's fake. Because that's fake. Now, I mean anyone who's actually looked at this with an open mind, like I have, will tell you there's something to this. I don't have the answers. And guess what? Even if I had the answers, I wouldn't go out and disclose them all right now on the air because <laughs> I'd end up dead. That's the reality of it. I've got no doubt there are groups in this world that don't want this stuff coming out. They want it coming out when they're ready and in the way they want it. So, yeah, folks, it's just, yeah, again, I just get boggled when I hear this. And the second thing about the whole, oh, well, people being injured. Guess what? Again, that's been happening since the beginning of the phenomena. There are stories going back to the 1800s of people handling wreckage from craft and then getting what sounds very much like radiation poisoning. So, yeah, folks, just nothing new here. It's, it's great that we're talking about the Nimitz and all these new cases, but this has been going on for a very long time. I mean, like I say, for goodness sakes, Charles Fort covered a lot of stories that if you read them now, they would not be out of place in today's ufology circles. So yeah, interesting one nonetheless. And uh, you know me, folks, when I get fired up, I'm going to tell you how I feel. So again, Dave, thanks for sending that through. Now again, folks, always remember, with any of these articles, if you want to go and check them out yourself, if you go in the show notes and click on the link, I always link the articles wherever I can. There have been times in the past where I've went back to look for an article and it's no longer up on the web. But in general, they're always there. Just go and click the link in the show notes. And the second one is also from Dave, as I say. And this one hits close to home, quite literally. So thanks, Dave, for sending this. This is a pretty cool one. And for those of you in the U.S., hopefully this will get out. It's Earth Day there. So this is a good article for Earth Day. 
And this one says, this is from theguardian.com. And this one says, Aurora of the sea, luminous plankton, lights up New Zealand shores. Rare phenomenon of bioluminescence is caused by blooms of plankton, which glow to a... There is a lovely photo of two people standing on the beach in Napier, which is about six, seven hours drive from here. Uh, and it basically looks like there are pool lights under the water by these waves. And let's just see, when did this article come out? The 5th. So it says, on the shorelines of New Zealand's North Island, which is where I live, North Island, shores have been lit up by the glowing aurora of the seas, blooms of plankton that glow blue-green after nightfall. The elusive, beautiful phenomena that sometimes sweeps into the coasts was witnessed by local biohunter enthusiasts who scour the shorelines for bioluminescence. It's also called the aurora of the seas, like the aurora australis, which is the southern lights, you see in the sky, said Sajith uh, Muralid Lidharan. So sorry, folks. I, I hate mispronouncing someone's name. A photographer who captured the phenomena in Napier. The light is activated by movement. Cresting waves begin to glow. Splashes sparkle. Footprints glimmer blue in the wet sand. And swimming fish can leave sparkling trails. Every time a wave comes in, you can see this beautiful phenomenon. It's amazing. It is. A lot of people were there. A lot of people with families. Some of them were swimming. He said, it is indeed a great thing to witness. And yeah, folks, I haven't seen this in person. The phenomenon is caused by blooms of plankton and phytoplankton species, some of which use the luminescence ad adaptation to evade or distract predators. Dinoflagellates produce the light when disturbed and will give a light flash lasting a fraction of a second, disturbing the predator trying to consume them, said Coral Safi, algal ecologist at the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research. That's here in New Zealand. The glowing waves are unpredictable, but Safi said they were common on warm nights and may also occur after days of heavy rain. The phenomenon only occurs at night, Safi said, as the creatures have an inbuilt biological clock and do not glow during the daytime even if put into a dark space or container. Now, that's pretty cool. Microbiologist Susie Wells, she's well known here because she was one of the faces uh, of the government during the COVID stuff, uses bioluminescence to track the growth of infectious diseases in a laboratory setting, but said she is also an enthusiast and has gone hunting to see the creatures lighting up in the wild. Around New Zealand shorelines, amateur biohunting groups have sprung up, where watchers alert one another if they see the phenomena occurring, and sometimes travel up the coast to try to witness it. People post if they've seen anything, and it's been quite this and it's been quite quiet this year. So it was really great to see that one. Wiles said of the Napier sighting, "She has been hunting. The more people who see it, the better." I think Wiles said, "It's just this beautiful, magical, really kind of amazing phenomenon." So, folks, we'll see. Hey, maybe I'll I'll make a note of that right now. In some ways, we are quite advanced here in Tower Studios, but in some ways, JT is still very old school, and I like to write things on scrap paper that I keep here on the desk. So I've just written a note there. Uh, I might just have a look and see how difficult these groups are to join, and maybe I'll get out one night for a look. I think that would be pretty cool, and maybe I can get some photos for you, so I will keep you posted. If you don't hear anything about it, folks, don't be afraid to prod me because I often get uh, lost in the weeds, as the saying goes, uh, get distracted. I get too many things on. 
So don't be afraid to ask me, hey, weren't you going to check up on that? So thanks again, Dave, for those excellent articles. And now we're on to our third one. And this one is from Trey in Oregon. And this one is from one of Trey's favorite sites and mine as well, unexplainedmysteries.com. And this one says, Aerial Anomaly over Alaska sparks UFO speculation. And this is from April the 9th. Now, folks, for those of you that don't know, Alaska is by and large the largest U.S. state. It's twice as large or more as Texas. So technically, if there's a spot where you would expect to see UFOs, I mean, I know there are quote unquote hotspots, but what I'm saying is bigger state equals more space. Although there are fewer people there, it's still wide open spaces. You don't have as much city. You don't have smog in that interesting article here. And they've got some photos. So it says residents took to social media to share photographs of an anomalous cloud-like trail over Lazy Mountain. Resembling a long spiraling shaft of cloud or the plume from some sort of rocket, the phenomenon was first sighted by locals on Thursday morning at around 7 a.m. When photographs started appearing online, social media users were left speculating over what it could have been. Theories included a UFO, a satellite, a volcanic eruption, and even a missile connected to the current conflict in Ukraine. So numerous were the reports that Alaska State Troopers and the Alaska Rescue Coordinator Center began coordinating a potential rescue operation in the event that there had been a plane crash. A rescue helicopter which flew over the region, however, reported finding nothing on the ground. There have been no reports of overdue aircraft or ELT activations indicating an aircraft crash, Alaska State Troopers stated in a news release. An investigation later indicated that the phenomena could have been the contrail of an airplane. Further investigations revealed that a large commercial jet was flying in the area around the time that the photos and video were taken, officials wrote. Troopers believe that the photos and videos showed a contrail from the commercial jet, combined with the rising sun, which together caused the unique atmospheric sight. Well, look, I am no atmospheric expert, but it's the biggest damn contrail I've ever seen. It's much bigger, much much wider, I should say, and also it's not completely white, which contrails tend to be. So yeah, interesting, and um, we shall see if they end up with an answer to it. We'll uh, we'll keep our eyes peeled. So the next one here from Trey, it's from Trey, uh, thank you Trey, but for me, this I dedicate to John, who's our chapter president over in Western Australia. And John, I know this is a long way from you. It's basically on the opposite side of the country, but interesting nonetheless. And this is from Yahoo News, and it comes from people, it looks like. That's where this photo is from. It says, weird alien-like creature washes up on Australia's Bondi Beach, baffling onlookers. Now, for those of you that aren't Australian or don't know much about Aussie, Bondi Beach is Sydney's most famous beach. And don't shoot me if I'm wrong, Aussies, but I, to me... Uh, everything I've heard, Bondi is your most famous beach. So it says a creature that washed up on an Australian beach has left many scratching their heads. According to Storyful, on April 5th, Drew Lambert discovered a strange-looking animal washed up on the shore of Australia's Bondi Beach during a jog. Lambert took a video of the odd find and posted it on Facebook, captioning the clip, Can someone please tell me what this weird alien-like creature is? that was washed up on the beach at Bondi today. The jogger told Storyful that the unusual animal was about half a meter long, so that's about a foot and a half roughly, folks, with human-like lips and skin like a shark. 
I've lived in Bondi for 20 years, and I've never seen anything like this before, he added. And yeah, it does look like a lamprey or a shark. After posting the video of the creature on Facebook, Lambert told Storyful he now believes the animal was a decomposing coffin ray with ballooned intestines based on the comments his clip has received. Laetitia Hannon, a supervisor at the Sea Life Sydney Aquarium, came to a similar conclusion. Well, she's an expert, so I would trust her. Hannon told news.com.au that the animal is a coffin ray, also known as an Australian numbfish, a species found close to shore along Australia's east and west coasts. This discovery comes less than two weeks after another man found a different creature on an Australian beach, and that we've covered here. Alex Tan described the unrecognizable animal he came across as extraterrestrial in a video he posted to Instagram. So, yeah, folks, it's another very interesting one. And again, for those of you that don't know JT's origin story in full, I worked many years in fisheries, so I've seen a lot more odd creatures than the average person. And there are some things out there that we know about that are odd as hell. So I can only imagine what's in the deep, deep, dark abysses that we don't know about. So, yeah, interesting one. And thank you, Trey. So we've got the third one here from Trey, which is another in a series of videos Trey sends me. And he likes to send me these videos that say when nature attacks or when nature fights back. And look, it's it's good. I, I like reading these kind of stories, um, especially when no one's hurt. So this one, Lisa and Harry, listen to this because it's from your state. Bear punches its way out of North Carolina family's car. And this is from Friday, April the 8th. And this is from ABC 7, which I'm assuming it says ABC 7. And then down the bottom, it says ABC 11. But anyway, I'm sure it's a local station in North Carolina. So Asheville, North Carolina. Now, I'm pretty sure Asheville is pretty close to the Brown Mountain Lights, which we've covered here. A North Carolina family woke up and found a bear stuck inside of their car. Ashley McGowan of Buncombe County said she led her dogs outside like she does every morning. But this morning, she saw something quite unusual. She took out her phone and started recording as a bear forced its way out through the front windshield of her car. After the mama bear was finished with the car, she and her two cubs walked off. McGowan's insurance company confirmed the damage. The car was damaged severely enough to be deemed a total loss. And yeah, um, for those of you that aren't from the country or haven't been around bears, they are big, they are muscly, and they are ornery when they want to be, so... I'm not surprised that the car was a write-off. I did see a photo, and there's photos here. There's a video that's playing in the background. I mean, it smashed the windshield, pretty much decimated the windshield. And I would assume with the claws, it would have shredded the inside of the car. We had quite a few close encounters when I was a kid with bears and mountain lions and things like that. And when you live in or near the mountains, and this is very close to the Smoky Mountains or the Blue Mountains, um, the Blue Ridge Mountains, I'm sorry if I've got the wrong one, but I'm sure it's the Blue Ridge Mountains. And so, yeah, you would expect to see a bear. And again, um, I don't think they say here, but I'm pretty sure it would have been a black bear being in uh, in eastern in the eastern half of the U.S. So, yeah, interesting one. And as people encroach on animals' uh, habitat, it's happening all over the world. So thank you for that, Trey. Now the next one is from Mark in San Antonio. Mark, who is our Air Force veteran chapter president representative attache. Mark, thank you. Mark has sent me an excellent photo, by the way, folks, of him enjoying the paranormal sun. 
And that is going to be coming out soon in the social media to help celebrate our 100th country listened to. So this one here from Live Science says, and it's by Brendan Spector, it says, Largest crown jellyfish ever discovered is a blood red saucer-like weirdo. The crown jellyfish, A. Renaldisi, has between 26 and 39 tentacles. Scientists have discovered a new species of crown jellyfish that looks like a scarlet alien saucer in the sunless midnight zone of California's Monterey Bay. The newly described species, Atola uh, renaldisi, measures about 5 inches or 13 centimeters in diameter and can have anywhere from 26 to 39 tentacles. Researchers with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, or MBARI, said in a statement, like the 10 other known species of the Atola genus, A. renaldisi sports a deep groove running around its central bell. Giving, giving its body the appearance of a domed head wearing a frilly red crown. Though it's not much wider than a dollar bill, A. Rednaldsi seems to be the largest of the known species of Atola jellies, the researchers said. However, what really sets this jelly apart from its cousins is what it's missing. Unlike all the other currently known species of crown jellyfish, A. Rednaldsi lacks a single elongate tentacle, one long, thin tentacle that trails behind its body measuring up to six times the diameter of the jelly's bell. According to the researchers, a crown jelly uses this extended appendage to help snag prey, which can include crustaceans, siphonomores, rope-like gelatinous animals, and other small creatures that pass through the ocean's midnight zone, the deep sunless region of the ocean that extends from 3,300 to 13,100 feet, 1 to 4,000 meters below the water's surface. While analyzing thousands of hours of footage taken in the Monterey Bay's Midnight Zone between April 2006 and June 2021, Mbari researchers occasionally spotted crown jellies that lacked the signature trailing tentacle. The team suspected that they had discovered three new crown jelly species in the bay, but sightings were too rare to prove it. Now in a new study published March 16th in the journal Animals, the researchers have conclusively identified one of the unknown jellies as the new species. The team studied 10 specimens of the mysterious crown jelly, including both physical specimens and sightings from archival footage, to conclude that the species is molecularly and morphologically distinct from all other known species in the genus. That is, it looks different both physically and genetically from its cousins. A. Rednalsi has so far only been spotted in the Monterey Bay, swimming at depths of 3,323 to 10,463 feet which is about 1,000 to 3,200 meters. These remarkable new jellies underscore how much we still have to learn about the deep sea. Fully agree. Lead study author George Mats Matsumoto, a senior education and research specialist at MBARI, said in the statement, On just about every dive into the depths of Monterey Bay, we learn something new. MBARI researchers have identified more than 225 new species over the past 34 years, according to the Institute. The two other crown jelly species observed without trailing tentacles may well end up being classified as new Atola species in the future, the researchers added. However, more observations are still required. So yeah, folks, another mystery from the deep sea. And yeah, it's an astonishing place. It's less explored than the dark side of the moon. It's crazy how much stuff is down there. And like I say, Mark, thanks again for sending that through to me. Now, the next one here that Mark sent is from Live Science, and this one is from Tim Metcalf, and it says, Prehistoric rock carvings 
may have been the first cartoons in history. New study suggests. So I guess that's uh we had that comic growing up. I think it's still around. It's called BC, where they were cavemen. So maybe it's uh maybe that's the comic that's on the wall. World's oldest moving pictures may not have come from the late nineteenth century, but rather from thousands of years earlier. Pictures of ancient animals carved onto flat stones tens of thousands of years ago were deliberately placed around fires so they would look animated in the flickering firelight a new study suggests. Creating such animated carvings might have been a popular prehistoric activity as a family group sat around a fire, and at least some of the wall paintings and carvings found in ancient caves might also have been influenced by their appearance in the moving light and shadows of flames, the study suggests. When you get this dynamic light across the surface, suddenly all these animals start to move. They start to flicker in and out of focus. Archaeologist Andy Needham of the University of York in the UK told Live Science. Needham is the lead author of a study published Wednesday, April 20th, in the journal PLOS1 that describes how some of the animal portraits carved on flat limestone rocks at a prehistoric shelter in southern France were exposed to hearth fires after they were made. The study suggests the carvings were crafted primarily to be animated by the firelight, and the researchers have now created movies from their findings that show the effect, with firelight dancing across a precise 3D model of a carved plaquette adorned with engravings of wild horses. The interaction of engraved stone and roving firelight made engraved forms appear dynamic and alive, suggesting this may have been important in their use, the researchers wrote in the new study. Human neurology in, is particularly attuned to interpreting shifting light and shadows as movement and identifying visually familiar forms in such varying light conditions. Needham and his colleagues used modern scanning technology and virtual reality techniques to study 50 limestone plaquettes, flat carved rocks, that were excavated in the mid-19th century at the Monastruc Rock Shelter in southern France. They are now held at the British Museum in London. Yeah, a lot of things are held at the British Museum in London. Together, the plaquettes are covered with 77 naturalistic carvings of wild animals, including horses, chamois, reindeer, and bison. Scientists think that Homo sapiens made, made the engravings during the Maglidenian epoch of the late Upper Paleolithic period, between 12,000 and 16,000 years ago. Needham had noticed that many of the carved plaquettes were damaged by fire, some were covered by layers of white ash, while others were scorched or cracked by heat. On a closer inspection, they showed rubefaction, bands of pink discoloration that result from heating iron deposits in the stone. He said that many of the animal engravings were superimposed on each other. Rather than ignoring or engraving over previous depictions, animals were often melded together or fitted around each other, the researchers wrote. Sometimes the animal's body parts were recycled, such as in one plaquette, that shows a both a horse and a bovid, some type of wild cattle, the abdomen and neck of the horse from the back, and the neck of the bovid, while the head of the horse forms the ear of the bovid, the researchers wrote in the study. Needham and his colleagues suggest the prehistoric plaquettes from Manustruck, and possibly at other sites, were placed around the hearth of a fire so that the portrayals of animals carved on them might appear animated in the flickering firelight. There's also evidence of markedly different levels of artistic skill in portraying the animals, and that suggests the diversity of authorship of the carvings. In other words, they were made by several different people. That in turn could suggest that the practice of carving animals onto the plaquettes 
and then placing them around the fire to be animated might have been a social activity, he said. It may be that many people within the community were sat around doing this, he said. It's almost like Paleolithic TV. Study co-author Izzy Wisher, an archaeologist at Durham University in the UK, agreed that the engravings on the rocks and the evidence they were subsequently heated suggest they were intended to look animated. I think part of the reason why they may have been overlaying animals in this way was exactly to create this animation effect, she told Live Science. Sometimes you see not the same animal, but multiple animals in different orientations. So one would become visible, and then another, and then a different one, which really creates a sense of narrative around these engraved forms. Similar practices may also have influenced some of the ancient paintings on the walls of caves, such as the stunning Chauvet Cave in southwestern France, where many of the animal portraits are similarly overlaid on each other, and some seem to show signs of being heated by fires underneath them, she said. So yeah, folks, it just goes to show, as I often say on the show, my personal humble opinion is that there is so much out there in this world, especially from a historical standpoint, that we don't fully understand. And that, like I say, when there are people out there that think that we somehow know 95% of all history, I'd say it's more like reverse those numbers. I'd say it's more like we know 5% of what went on. We might know the rough overlay, but we definitely don't know the nitty-gritty details. It's kind of like looking at a map of the U.S. and saying, well, I know there must be a road from the East Coast to the West Coast, but I don't know what the road's called, I don't know where it goes exactly, and I don't know how many miles long it is. It's a little like that. You might know where it starts and you might know where it ends roughly, but it doesn't mean you know every detail. So thanks again, Mark, as always, for sending those through to me. Now, the next one I've got here is a very interesting article I found, and we've got a listener of the show who's a friend, a fellow podcaster named Bob in Oklahoma, and Bob has talked a good bit about Bigfoot and what happens if we actually find them and that they actually exist. So we've discussed briefly that Oklahoma lawmakers wanted to put in into effect a law to allow Bigfoot hunting in southeastern Oklahoma to try and draw tourists and try and get people into that area. Well, this is at the opposite end of the spectrum, and this is from coasttocoastam.com, and this says, Fifth grade class project leads to protection for Bigfoot in Washington state. And for those of you that know a fair bit about Bigfoot Sasquatch, as far as the U.S. goes, Washington state, Washington state, Oregon, Idaho, western Montana, and northern California are really the kind of... Uh, Hot spots. I mean, yeah, they're seen all over the U.S., but when people think Bigfoot, they tend to think of Washington State. Says, as a result of a rather unique project, a class of fifth graders in Washington State successfully lobbied their local government to declare their county a Sasquatch protection and refuge area. The cryptozoological civics lesson was reportedly the work of students at Lincoln Elementary School in the city of Holquiam, according to their teacher. Andrea Andrews, the youngsters were initially tasked with researching the famed cryptid and determining if Bigfoot was real and hadn't been discovered yet, or that it was just a big bear and people had misidentified it. This sparked something of a healthy debate within the class, with opinions on the issue largely being, being split down the middle. To their credit, beyond the matter of whether or not Bigfoot is real, the kids also raised some thought-provoking questions with regards to whether or not Sasquatch should be granted protection in the county, as some students expressed concerns about the creature disrupting the local ecosystem if its population began to flourish. Ultimately, however, the efforts to afford Bigfoot some refuge in the region 
proved to be persuasive to the majority of the class, as the pro-Sasquatch contingent posited that the rarity of Sasquatch encounters suggested that, sadly, the bipedal beast is not flourishing at this time and poses no threats to other wildlife. Upon coming to a consensus, the class put together a proposal which argued that there is evidence supporting the notion that Sasquatch exists, and since sightings are scant at best, it is likely an endangered species. That needs protection. Much to the subsequent surprise of the students, when Resolution 2022-037 came before the Grays Harbor County Board of Commissioners at a meeting last month, officials opted to unanimously pass the proposal and decreed the county is now a Sasquatch protection and refuge area, stressing to her students that they had changed the world in a little way. Via their Bigfoot project, Andrews hopes that they will carry the civics lesson into the rest of their lives. So yeah, look, interesting, and I, I think it's really good because... Whether you believe Bigfoot is real or not, I think it's really awesome that the lawmakers actually supported these kids and put it into place because what's it going to harm? If they're real, you're protecting them. If they're not real, so what? Big deal. So yeah, I think that's a great little article and obviously something near and dear to the show's heart. Now, to follow on from that, we've got another very interesting one here. And uh, it's something from an area of the world that we've had many listeners to and a very fascinating country. This is also from Coast to Coast. And this one says, Farmer reports terrifying encounter with Bigfoot-like creature in Argentina. A farmer in Argentina claims to have had a terrifying encounter with the country's legendary Bigfoot-type creature known as the Ucumar, and that the run-in with the mysterious beast left him deeply disturbed. According to a local media report, the very strange incident occurred earlier this month in a small community south of the city of Salta. At the conclusion of a soccer game he had been following on the radio, the unnamed witness noticed his dogs were causing a commotion outside. Thinking that perhaps a person or animal was trying to steal his corn, the diligent farmer exited the house with a flashlight and walked right into a nightmare that has haunted him ever since. As he journeyed down a dark path on his property, the man cast the light ahead of him and saw with his own eyes something incredible that I would have never imagined. The astounded farmer later recalled, There was this thing. It was like a big, hairy, dark-colored gorilla. It was walking slowly. It was very robust. It looked where I was, and I saw his red eyes. Then he went into the bush. The startled man said that he was too scared to follow the creature. Instead, he understandably ran back to the house and locked himself inside the residence, where he spent the night unable to sleep due to what he had just experienced. I giggle because I don't blame him. After the farmer's unsettling story was covered by a prominent media outlet in Argentina, the tale went viral on social media in the country. Sadly, it would seem that there is no language barrier when it comes to ridicule, and the paranormal, as his wild account was mocked by many people online. Isn't that always the way? That said, he was unmoved by the response, later declaring that, I know there are all kinds of comments and jokes, but I would never lie. I assure you that I have seen that hairy beast. While the roasting on social media may not bother the man, the memory of what he saw apparently does, as he claims that he has suffered from physical ailments, believed to be brought out by fright. Shedding a bit more light on the creature's appearance, the man indicated that it stood approximately five and a half feet tall, and although it somewhat resembled a gorilla, it was unlike anything he had ever seen before. That was not something human, he mused, nor was it a common animal. To that end, it is widely believed by many in the area that the farmer encountered the Ucumar, which is a legendary creature in Argentina that is described as somewhat akin to Bigfoot. 
although smaller and often described as being more bear-like. The curious case follows another Ukumar sighting, which made headlines back in 2019, following the discovery of multiple prints believed to be the mysterious beast. So yeah, folks, for those of you who don't know, especially in the U.S., yeah. Wild man, hairy man, Bigfoot-type beast all over the world, and definitely all over Central and South America. So yeah, um, interesting cryptid story there for us. Right, so we've still got three more to go here, and the last one is quite a doozy. So um, on to the next. Now, this is something that's near and dear to JT personally, because I've had several people I love very much leave this world due to cancer and seen several others suffer from it. And it's also got to do with some of the things we've covered, like the Malta ruins and sound waves. And this is a very interesting one from a website called studyfinds.org. And this one is titled, Using Sound Waves to Destroy Tumors Keeps Cancer from Coming Back. Ann Arbor, Michigan. Oh, sorry, this is from Jocelyn Solis Moreria. Ann Arbor, Michigan. Scientists from the University of Michigan have found an inventive way of getting rid of liver tumors for good. Their latest animal study shows that non-invasive sound technology effectively destroys 50 to 75% of the cancerous mass. By destroying a majority of the tumor, the immune system is capable of eliminating the rest and preventing the disease from spreading. Liver cancer is one of the top 10 causes of cancer-related deaths worldwide. Despite multiple treatment options, it continues to have a 5-year survival rate of less than 18% in the United States. So folks, when I found out that my mom's cancer had spread to her liver, I knew she didn't have long, and this is exactly why what they're saying here. There is also a high rate of tumor recurrence and high risk of it spreading to other parts of the body. However, in the current study, over 80% of mice exposed to targeted sound waves did not show any evidence of the tumor coming back. Even if we don't target the entire tumor, we can still cause the tumor to regress and also future metastasis, says study co-founder Zhen Yu, professor of biomedical engineering at Michigan, in a university release. How does histotripsy work? The sound treatment known as histotripsy uses ultrasound waves to physically destroy the targeted tissue with millimeter precision. It also stimulated the rat's immune systems to respond and contribute to the regression of the untargeted portion of the tumor. Histotripsy is a promising option that can overcome the limitations of currently available ablation modalities and provide safe and effective non-invasive liver tumor ablation. We hope that our learnings from this study will motivate future preclinical and clinical histotripsy investigations toward the ultimate goal of clinical adoption of histotripsy treatments for liver cancer patients. While ultrasounds use sound waves to produce images of the body, the researchers modified sound waves for use as an actual treatment. A benefit to histotripsy in the study was that it did not produce harmful side effects, which are common with cancer treatments, such as radiation and chemotherapy. And folks, um, I've seen some of the strongest people I've ever known knocked to their knees by radiation and chemo. Our transducer, designed and built at UM, delivers high-amplitude microsecond-length ultrasound pulses, acoustic cavitation, to focus on the tumor specifically to break it up, Dr. Zhu explains. Traditional ultrasound devices use lower-amplitude pulses for imaging. Histotripsy uses microsecond-long pulses to create micro-bubbles within targeted issues. Sorry, targeted tissues. The bubbles rapidly expand and collapse. 
These violent and mechanical stressors destroy enough cancer cells to break up the tumor's structure. Scientists are currently testing the new sound technique in a human liver cancer clinical trial in the U.S. and Europe. Well, folks, let's hope that this becomes one of the first steps towards finally eradicating cancer because, yeah, it is something else, the suffering that it puts on not only the people who have it, but the loved ones surrounding them. And I speak on that as as much of a subject matter expert as you can be, unfortunately. Now, folks, I've saved a couple of really good ones here for the end. The first one is from the Daily Mail Australia, and this one says, Mysterious sarcophagus found in Notre Dame Cathedral after it was devastated by 2019 fire will be open to reveal its secrets. And I'm sure you remember that fire. It was all over the news. The well-preserved leaden sarcophagus was uncovered during work to rebuild the cathedral's ancient spire. It is believed to date from the 14th century, so that it'd be 1300s, but could have been an extremely rare burial practice at the time. Scientists have already peered using an endoscopic camera, revealing the upper part of a skeleton and hair. Forensic experts and scientists will now open the sarcophagus and study its contents to identify the skeleton's gender and former state of health. A mysterious sarcophagus discovered in the bowels of Paris's Notre Dame Cathedral after it was devastated by a fire in 2019 will soon be open to reveal its secrets. French archaeologists made the announcement on Thursday, just a day before the third anniversary of the inferno that engulfed the 12th century Gothic landmark, which shocked the world and led to a massive reconstruction project. During preparatory work to rebuild the church's ancient spire last month, workers found the well-preserved leaden sarcophagus buried 65 feet underground, lying among the brick pipes of a 19th century heating system. But it's believed to be much older, possibly from the 14th century. And they've got a photo of this uh, lead coffin, or I should say sarcophagus. Scientists have already peered inside the sarcophagus using an endoscopic camera, revealing the upper part of a skeleton, a pillow of leaves, perhaps hair, textiles, and dry organic matter. The sarcophagus, which is 1.95 meters or 6 feet 4 inches long and 48 centimeters or 1 foot 6 inches wide, was extracted from the cathedral on Tuesday, France's INRAP National Archaeological Research Institute said during a press conference. It is currently being held in a secure location and will be sent very soon to the Institute of Forensic Medicine in the southwestern city of Toulouse. Forensic experts and scientists will then open the sarcophagus and study its contents to identify the skeleton's gender and former state of health, lead archaeologist Christophe Besnier said, adding the carbon dating technology could be used. Noting that it was found under a mound of earth that had furniture from the 14th century, okay, so that's how they've dated it so far, Besnier said, if it turns out that it is in fact a sarcophagus from the Middle Ages, we are dealing with an extremely rare burial practice. They also hope to determine the social rank of the deceased. Given the place and style of the burial, they were likely to be among the elite of their time, with their name perhaps appearing in the register of the burials of the diocese. However, INRAP head Dominique Garcia emphasized that the body will be examined in compliance with French laws regarding human remains. A human body is not archaeological object, he said. As human remains, the civil code applies and archaeologists will study it as such. Once they finish studying the sarcophagus, it will be returned, not as an archaeological object, but an archaeo, uh, sorry, anthropological asset, Garcia added.
However, it has not yet been decided whether Notre Dame will serve as its final resting place. INRAP said the possibility of re-internment in the cathedral was being studied. The sarcophagus is not the only notable discovery at Notre Dame. Archaeologists have also unearthed a treasure trove of statues, sculptures, tombs, and pieces of an original rude screen dating back to the 13th century. Until now, only a few pieces remained of the rood, an ornate partition between the chancel and nave that separated the clergy and choir from the congregation. Yeah, I'm glad they explained it because I had no idea what a rood was. R-O-O-D. Some of these are in the cathedral storerooms, while others are on show in the Louvre. In Catholic churches, most were removed during the Counter-Reformation in the 16th and 17th centuries. However, large pieces of the Notre Dame rood appear to have been carefully interred under the cathedral floor during the building's restoration by Eugene Viollet-le-Duc, uh, which added the spire in the mid-19th century. These include sculpted and polychrome fragments, figures, and religious architectural elements. One of the most extraordinary pieces is an intact sculpture of the head of a man, believed to be a representation of Jesus. The style of the sculpture and decoration suggests they date back to the 13th century. Unlike those preserved in the Louvre, however, these fragments are more brightly painted. The find includes around 10 plaster sarcophagi from the Middle Ages, most of which have been badly damaged by flues. So I don't know what they're talking about flues. Maybe they mean floods. And one of them, however, remains of fabric embroidered with gold thread, and some bones were found. At least four graves in the ground have also been identified. We uncovered all these riches just 10 to 15 centimeters under the floor slabs, said Christophe Besnier who headed the scientific team for the dig, the Guardian reports. It was completely unexpected. There were exceptional pieces documenting the history of the monument. It was an emotional moment. Suddenly, we had several hundred pieces of small fragments to large blocks, including sculpted hands, feet, faces, architectural decorations, and plants. Some of these pieces were still colored. Today marks three years to the day since the fire ripped through Notre Dame, quickly spreading along the roof structure, and causing burning timbers to collapse onto the ceiling of the vault below. By the time the fire was extinguished, the building's spire had collapsed. Most of its roof had been destroyed, and its upper walls were severely damaged. Extensive damage to the interior was prevented by its stone-vaulted ceiling, which largely contained the burning roof as it collapsed. The excavation, which has just been completed, will now give way to a long period of analysis and study to better identify and date the furniture, organic remains, DNA, and other materials that have been unearthed. And it carries on here, folks. There's a good section about the history of the cathedral, when and how it was built. But I'm not going to cover all of that over. We'll be here for another half an hour talking about it. But yeah, excellent article with lots of photos. If you want to check that out, I would highly encourage you to go and check it out. Yeah, I guess it just goes to show, again, it was terrible that this fire happened and destroyed this uh, World Heritage Building. But on the other hand, they never would have found these things, probably, if that fire wouldn't have happened. So, yeah, it's just interesting that here you've got these. I've never heard of a lead coffin from that time in Europe. Um, not from that far back. So it is very interesting. And it will be interesting to see who it was that was laid to rest in that coffin. Right. So now, as with all good things, we come to the end. We come to the last episode of the News of the Damned for this episode. But this is a very good story, and I saw this one floating around, and this has only just come out a few days ago. And this is from Motherboard, which is part of Vice.com. And it says, Newly released documents shed light on government-funded research into wormholes, anti-gravity, 
and invisibility cloaks. A tranche of documents released to Motherboard through FOIA shows the research priorities of the Secretive Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program. And this is from Anna Merlon. Since its existence was revealed by the New York Times in 2017, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, which was funded by the Defense Intelligence Agency, or the DIA, has been the subject of fervent curiosity from UFO disclosure advocates, government transparency activists, and journalists alike. The now formally defunct program, well, again, that's what they've told us, was studying UFO-related phenomena, according to a landmark 2020 investigation by Popular Mechanics. The DIA's public explanations on just what that involved have ranged over the years from unsatisfying to obfuscatory. Namely, the agency has insisted in recent years that ATIP was not looking at UFO-related phenomena, which former employees working on the program say is simply not true. Now, a new tranche of documents released by the DIA to Motherboard, based on a FOIA request filed four years ago, shows in detail the exotic and occasionally downright weird research priorities of the Advanced Aerospace Weapons System Application Program, or AAWSAP. Gotta love these government acronyms. And at times, overlapping program whose existence has been known about for several years. Some of these documents were also released several years ago to John Greenwald at the Black Vault. Others have been circulating on Reddit for the past several weeks, indicating that the DIA has recently released a backlog of very old FOIA requests. The Sun also published some details, which you heard me covering that earlier, about some of the documents, which it also obtained via FOIA earlier this month. ATIP and AAWSAP appear to have been in practice almost interchangeable. A DIA spokesperson previously told Greenwald, ATIP was the name of the overall program. AAWSAP was the name of the contract that DIA awarded for the production of technical reports under ATIP. The nearly 1,600 pages of documents released to Motherboard are a mix of scientific research, contracts, presentations, briefings, and memos related to the program. There are also many documents written for or by former Senator Harry Reid, who was responsible for the creation of the program. That detail meetings about ATIP or AAWSAP argue for or against certain research or contracts and the like. In many cases, documents prepared for the DIA about the theoretical applications of certain technologies were prepared by a person or entity whose name is redacted. Motherboard is publishing the full scope of what we received for transparency and to aid researchers and other journalists. Those documents are available here. Excellent, folks, because you know what JT's going to do. He's going to download those damn documents just like he did the CIA files. The documents make clear that the AAWSAP was focused on studying the defense and military capabilities of a variety of exotic speculative technologies, including invisibility cloaking, traversable war wormholes, stargates, negative energy, anti-gravity, high-frequency gravitational wave communications, and an obviously never-carried-out proposal to tunnel a hole through the moon using nuclear explosives. Gravity is the bane of aerospace transportation, one DIA reference document reads. In the coming weeks, Motherboard will examine a few of these proposed in detail. None of these technologies ever seem to have gotten remotely close to being a reality, as far as we know, and that is where the truth lies, as far as we know. The documents included in the FOIA are fascinating for two reasons. The first is that the research is, well, pretty weird. And the other is that ATIP and AAWSAP 
weren't doing much of that research in-house. Both programs relied in large part on contract research conducted by an arm of a private company. You guessed it, folks. Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Studies, or BAASS, owned by eccentric hotel magnate Robert Bigelow. BASS, BAASS is now defunct, but Bigelow Aerospace is still operational. Bigelow was a personal friend of Reed and lobbied for the creation of the ATIP program. He owned the infamous Skinwalker Ranch, a location said by some UFO enthusiasts to be a hotbed of paranormal activity and others to be a hotbed of a particular kind of hot air for about 10 years. Bigelow is also known for having a keen interest in life after death. Just six, month, six months after BAASS was created, according to Popular Mechanics, Reed created funding for ATIP and drafted the AAWSAP contract. Bass was the sole bidder for the contract, and was awarded $10 million for the first year. The documents raise further questions, which have already been swirling for years, about the government's allocation of millions of dollars to a set of programs that seem to have ultimately accounted for very little, at least publicly. Again, at least publicly. Titles of 38 research projects covered under the AAWSAP were released in 2019. I just get annoyed. The acronym is so long, and I can't shorten it. Uh, mentally, to, to just say it like ATIP. Released in 2019, following a FOIA request filed by Stephen Aftergood, director of the Federation of American Scientists Project on Government Secrecy. After publication of this article, Jeremy Corbell, a UFO filmmaker, pointed out that George Knapp was the first person to publish, publish a list of 37 of these areas of study in July 2018. Knapp obtained it, he reported, from physicist Hal Putoff who previously worked for Bass. The DIA formally released the full 38 item list in 2019 in response to Aftergood's FOIA. Aftergood 2 was critical of aspects of the program, telling Popular Mechanics the whole contracting process for the program was irregular from start to finish. The AAWSAP contract sounds like it was a good deal for the contractor, but it would be hard to argue that either the military or the public got their money's worth. But what was released to Motherboard this week is a far more in-depth series of records, giving status updates on various projects and outlining why, precisely, the U.S. government was so interested in things like invisibility cloaks. Well, duh, it's because it, it would be a game-changing item of technology. They also reveal the enormous amount of effort former, former Reed, so I know they're saying Harry Reed, who's passed away, former Reed put into championing... championing the ATIP and AAWSAP, and into trying to keep the work they did classified. Reed passed away in December 2021, which we covered on the show. In 2020, Reed said that what had publicly been released to that point only scratched the surface of what the Pentagon knows about UFOs. Yep, you're, I'm on board with that, Harry. And advanced technology and told Motherboard that he believed at the time that far more information should be released publicly. Yep, me too. This wasn't always the case. However, the documents released to Motherboard also show Reed pushed at one time to keep ATIP highly classified. In a 2009 letter to then-Secretary of Defense William Lynn III, Reed urged Lynn to make large portions of ATIP a restricted special access program, a step above how normal classified documents are handled. Given the current rate of success, the continued study of these subjects will likely lead to technology advancements that in the immediate near term will require extraordinary protection, Reed wrote. A memo prepared for the Secretary of Defense 
by James Clapper Jr., who would go on to become director of National Intelligence, recommended against giving the program an SAP classification. Reed also made sweeping promises about what ATIP could do for the U.S. Ultimately, the results of ATIP will not only benefit the U.S. government, but I believe will directly benefit both the DOD, Department of Defense, in ways not yet imagined, he wrote. The, the technological insight and capability gained will provide the U.S. with a distinct advantage over any foreign threats and allow the U.S. to maintain its preeminence as a world leader. It seems clear that even more documents about these two linked and deeply weird programs will be forthcoming. In early March, for instance, Greenwald at the Black Vault learned that the Barack Obama Presidential Library is in possession of thousands of pages of materials, although those could take years to be released. So yeah, uh, John Greenwald does some real yeoman's work. Now, there are people out there, I'm sure, who think that John Greenwald's a shill and He's part of the group, whoever it is that's wanting to release things or release misinformation. I don't think so, from what I've read. Those documents that John has provided for all of us from the CIA, really eye-opening stuff. And I hope that these documents that have been released will be just as interesting. So I'll definitely be downloading those, folks, and we shall see how we go. So, folks, on that note, we come to the end of this episode of the News of the Damned. Again, thank you so much for helping us reach 100-plus countries worldwide, and we'll just continue to grow and go from strength to strength. Don't be afraid to reach out if there's anything you'd like me to cover or you want to get in touch or you want to ask questions. The easiest way is either to get a hold of me on Facebook or Instagram or just shoot me an email at theparanormalsun all one word, at gmail.com. Aside from that, my friends, take care, stay safe. Your next episode will be the next in the Betty and Barney Hill series. It might be out a day or so late. We'll just see. I'll try and get it out on time, but I haven't even started it because this has been quite a saga of an episode, and I'm glad. I wanted it to be something special to celebrate that 100th country threshold. It's something amazing, astounding, and thank you all for being part of it. So my friends, with that, stay safe, take care, and I'll talk to you soon.